This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every two weeks. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for supporting the podcast. This is Robert Blumen. I'm here at QCon San Francisco 09 with Jay Kreps of Project Voldemort. Jay, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell the listeners a little bit about your background. Um, yeah, so so I guess I uh, have been involved in like data-related programming problems uh, for websites. I, I used to work for a comparison shopping site called Nextag, and, and now I work for LinkedIn uh, Social Network. And so originally my, my interest um, and educational background was, was more in machine learning applications, but um, I found that more and more I was uh, pulled just into scalability problems. And so one of the things that I worked on at, at LinkedIn um, was this Project Voldemort, which is a, a storage system. Um, so it's, it's you know, purely a distributed application. It has no kind of analytical applications. It's just for you know, storing your data and getting it back out. Um, and it's, it's something we've put to use there for these, these projects. So what is Project Voldemort? Um, so it's a, it's a distributed storage system. So it's, it's um, kind of like a dumbed-down version of MySQL or any database, but uh, it supports much, much weaker queries. And um, we'll scale across many machines, so so we'll support much much larger data and, and much higher uh, rate of course. Give us a brief history of the project. Um, so I started the project actually right about the time I came to LinkedIn. Um, at that time, LinkedIn didn't really have any uh, distributed storage solution. We just had uh, databases, um, centralized databases, some some caching in front of them sometimes, but but that was it. Um, so I thought, you know, there was there was room for improvement, and then we had a lot of projects which, you know, required storing a lot of data or required serving a lot of data. And um, when you have only a single database, um, that can be that can be a big challenge uh, because you're you're trying to store much more data than you have memory. Provide a brief history of the project. Uh, so so Project Voldemort was something I started working on right about the time I came to LinkedIn. Um, we had a, a number of problems that I thought this would be applicable for. Um, so it, it seemed like a, a good thing to do. It wasn't really officially a, a project uh, of LinkedIn. It was more like you know a twenty percent project, uh, but it, it became kind of an official project um, as more and more applications came around. There are a lot of popular databases out there. Obviously, you thought that none of them really solved the problem you had. Tell us a bit about what is the unique problem domain that you think Voldemort solves that wasn't adequately solved by other tools that already existed. Sure. So there, there are a lot of good open source databases. Um, the, the, there's kind of two categories. There's, there's fairly stable, um, well-tested systems like MySQL or Postgres, which are centralized database systems. Uh, so they, they do a great job on a, on a single computer. And they provide you know, very rich query capabilities and, and a lot of features. Um, those were not what we were looking for because we needed we needed to scale you know over many computers and, and doing that on top of those systems is, is somewhat difficult. Um, so so that was that was the problem we were trying to solve. Now recently there's been a lot more distributed databases and so this is in that space. It's a very new space. There's a lot of you know new project every week. Could you name some of the other well-known projects in that space? There, there's a whole kind of NoSQL genre I guess of open source projects. It breaks down into a couple different areas, but but people who are doing you know real time 
distributed storage. There's also Cassandra. There's HBase. There's um, there's there's a number of other ones. A lot of people are trying to solve this problem at the same time. This must be an emerging problem. What real-world factors have driven the emergence of this problem? Probably the most obvious thing is actually quite obvious, which is the, uh, the Internet, right? So the Internet, one of the things it ends up doing is centralizing a lot of computation. It's kind of the opposite of what you would expect. You would expect if you, you know, connected computers with uh, fast networks that you would decentralize computation, but in fact it means that everybody wants to go to Google or they want to go to LinkedIn or they want to go to some other website and uh, they want that company to do some computation for them, which means that you end up having millions of users coming, coming to your site every day wanting to do some computation, uh, which, which creates a huge load problem, right? So if, if you imagine the larger uh, applications, you know, before that were, were probably enterprise application, you could imagine having hundreds of people all using it at the same time, but it was still just a few hundred people I didn't really warrant, you know, changing the architecture of a of a database to support that. You just bought a slightly bigger machine. Um, so that that's the main force. The the other force is, you know, things are changing. Disks are getting slower. Um, programming languages have become safer, so you don't necessarily need a specialized query language. Um, th there's a lot of other factors, but but I think the main one is just the the demand for more scalability. In your talk at QCon, you said something very interesting. 80% of caching tiers are fixing problems that shouldn't exist. What did you mean by that? Um, so I guess there's, there's two things you can cache, right? One is you can put a cache in front of your database, meaning you, you pull something out of the database and you put it in your cache. Um, the problem with that is your, your database is also a cache, right? Your, your database machines have a, a bunch of memory, and your, your caching machines probably have also a bunch of memory, and uh, probably you have the same stuff in both systems. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a bad... It's a bad solution. You could have twice as much memory, say. Um, now, there's, there's another kind of caching, which is, you know, maybe you have pulled together many different things from different databases, and you've done a lot of computation on top of it, and you want to cache that result. That makes a lot of sense, right? You don't want to redo that computation if you can help it. So that's, that's what I meant, is that most of the time when people are using caching, they're just uh, pulling something out of a database, putting it in a cache, uh, and then looking in the cache again, and, and really that's a problem the database should solve. You hadn't, shouldn't have to build a storage system on top of your storage system to make it faster. So would it be fair to say that Project Voldemort is a replacement for what people are doing now in a lot of sites with a sharded relational database, some read replicas, and some memcached servers? Yes, yeah, that, that is the goal, is to replace that kind of a setup. Primarily you get a cost savings, or is there something else driving it? Um, yeah, so you would ho hope to get a couple things. Like one is simplicity and not having to build that. Um, if you have to build a layer that deals with caching and deals with partitioning and deals with you know migrating of shards back and forth and all that kind of stuff, it's a lot of work. Um, this provides you something which is you know somewhat simpler. You can kind of mock it out for your testing. You can you know a lot of these problems are solved. Um, and 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 in addition, we would hope it would be you know, faster because we're able to drop some of the features that we don't need and, and you know, support simpler, the simpler queries you would be doing in that partition system anyway. Um, so, so there should be some cost savings and performance improvement as well. When you built this, similar projects did not exist, but were you influenced by some other things that were already out there that you liked? Um, yeah, probably the biggest influence was uh, the Google Bigtable and Amazon Dynamo papers. So the the... Bigtable was just a very popular system, so, so design-wise there's not that many similarities. 
Um, the, the similarities are mostly to this, this Amazon Dynamo system. So those both existed only as uh, you know, published computer science papers. There's there nothing we'd ever used uh, because they're you know, proprietary systems. Uh, so that was the goal, was to provide something like that that you could download off the internet and use. What are some typical use cases for Project Voldemort? So, so what I've seen and what we're doing at LinkedIn is, is primarily things that are under scalability pressure. So there's, there's, a, there's a couple ways, I guess, a storage problem can be hard. Um, one is, you know, it, it could be financial transactions. You could, you could, it could be very important that you have precise consistency. It could be very important that you never lose the data. There's other problems which are um, primarily just about, you know, reading the data as fast as possible. Um, so we're, we're, we're primarily, you know, focusing on problems that have uh, a lot of scalability pressure could be very, very simple storage problems. So, um, you know, we, we use it for tracking activity data. Um, that helps us do relevance features. It helps us do, you know, anything else like that. But it, but it does require doing a write, you know, uh, you know, multiple times per for each, you know, page that's served on the site. Um, and so that's, that's a, you know, very scalability intensive uh, problem to solve. So, so those are the kinds of things that we've looked at first, primarily because we had no other way to solve those problems. Whereas some smaller problem that you, you, know, you can still just put everything in, in a MySQL instance or Oracle instance, and uh, you know, it will certainly work for, for some time. It's primarily driven by the size of the problem. Uh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Are there cases where you wish you could use a relational database because you're very unhappy to give up all the general purpose query functionality, but you're really forced to go this way because of scale? Um, yeah, so, so probably all of them. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think, I think the, the comparison for us is really, you know, when, when we're using a relational database at LinkedIn, it's, it's, it's usually in an extremely dumbed down way. Um, so compared to that, uh, one of these NoSQL systems like Voldemort is, is much nicer to use. But compared to, um, you know, how, how you might use a relational database with an ORM system on top of it, if you were building just a very small application, that's very convenient because you, you make no commitments about how you access your data. You know, probably all of your data will fit in memory on the, the database and it provides a very flexible solution. Now, now once you're either um, putting things on disk you know, on a centralized system or, or spreading them across machines uh, in a decentralized system, uh, you're going to have to make choices about how you access your data. Um, and that, that's going to make it a much, much harder to use. At that point, I think it becomes a good trade-off. If you don't need to do that, then I think, you know, the, probably there's nothing about MySQL you're, you're unhappy with unless you just don't like, you know, the SQL query language. So if I'm using Project Voldemort and I need to look something up based on secondary key that poses a little bit more of a difficulty? Um, yeah, so I mean, the way these systems work is you push all that logic for different lookups into the right. So when you're doing a right, you're going to need to update a secondary list of, of items that points to it. So if you have um, maybe users by a primary user ID and you have users by an email, you're going to have to update both. And you're going to have to deal with the fact that they could be slightly out of sync because those updates don't happen in a single transaction. Right, so meaning when you fetch by primary key, you always get the up-to-date result, but when you fetch by email, it could be a few milliseconds behind, and you'll have to deal with the fact that if somebody updated their email right at that instant, and you get back no results when you fetch, uh, you know, you have to handle that correctly in your application. So it's, it's a trade-off. I think what you're saying is because of these scale issues, the programming model that we've all come to know and love where the data store appears as this mass of undifferentiated centralized data 
that that illusion is really going away. And as programmers, we're going to have to deal with some of the things we wish we didn't have to deal with, like the structuring of the data and the underlying consistency problems of a distributed system. Um, yeah, so that's that's true. I mean, the, the hope with these systems is actually to paper over it as much as possible so that you don't deal with those. Now, you end up thinking about how to do things with a weaker query model rather than thinking about, oh, how many machines are we going to have in production when we release this? Um, but, but my experience has been that you end up thinking a lot about what the database is doing if the data is large no matter what. You, you'll spend a lot of time thinking about how is Oracle answering this, this query? What is it doing? Uh, you're going to spend a lot of time you know, testing that. Even if you're using a very traditional database, right? you have to think through that, otherwise your, your product won't work. Voldemort provides a weaker consistency model than what most of us are used to with the relational database. First, tell us, what is the consistency model that relational databases provide? Sure. So, so I mean, um, the idea of consistency is, is you know, kind of uh, when you ask a question, what, what guarantees about the answer do you have? Uh, so, so traditionally, for databases, the, you know, you're, you're talking about ACID. Uh, which is you know kind of atomic, consistent, isolated, durable. Um, so so what does that mean? It means essentially that um, when, when you when you do some operation, uh, your operation will either happen or not. We're talking about a write. Um, you know if you if you never write to your data, then it's kind of very easy to keep it consistent. You just you just put it everywhere. But the problem, the fundamental problem that that we're trying to solve is if you have more than one machine, and you do a write to one machine, uh, you then need to do the same write maybe to another machine to keep the two in sync. Um, and of course, those can't happen at the same instant in time. So all of the problems that come up in these systems is you know, how to make it appear as if it happened at the same time. What's the best you can do? Uh, so for, for a traditional database, it, you don't have that problem. Uh, you have only a single machine. You, you, can, you can simply lock around the update uh, in memory, which, which makes it appear that uh, it either happens or doesn't. Right? So, so the properties that you get is that you know, it's, it's atomic, meaning it happens or it doesn't. It's, um, it's, it's, Isolated, um, it's durable, meaning you know it's um, written to disk in practice, um, but but particularly that it's uh, that it's consistent, meaning you know you you get the same answer twice. In your talk, you discussed uh, academic research called the CAP theorem, which showed in a formal way how this consistency property cannot be extended to scale. Tell us a little more about that. Sure. So there's a, there's a couple of these impossibility results. Um, so it's it's always funny when these uh, something you know a proof of impossibility becomes a, a practical topic because um, you know all, all it does is prove that you can't do something in a certain mathematical model. Um, so the CAP theorem is one of these results. I don't know if it's the most fundamental one, but it's the one that has been uh, made the most sense to people. Um, so, so w what it's saying is it, it kind of goes along with ACID. It's talking only about a distributed system, meaning you have state on more than one machine. Um, and what it's telling you is that you have to choose between consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. You know, in particular, you can get you can get two of those, uh, but not all three. Um, so, part you know, c consistency. Um, is 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 the same as in the the, the case of ACID. Um, Availability is the you know is uh, can you get at your data right so it's it's very easy to to provide consistency and partition tolerance if you don't have availability because you can just shut down the system anytime there's a problem uh, so that's that's an easy way to get to um, 
the one that's that's a little bit tricky is partition tolerance. Um, so this is something which is, I think, not that well understood. But the the idea is, the the simplest idea is, what if what if you had you know three machines here and on one network and three machines on another network and they suddenly couldn't talk to each other? Um, how are you going to be able to take updates on one set of machines or the other, right? Because you can't keep the state state in sync between them. Um, now that problem becomes um, is not just a you know what if there was a problem with the network, but also you know, in, in any case where you're taking an update on one machine, it may have some idea of what other machines are currently working and currently not working. Um, how can you correctly propagate that update if everyone doesn't agree on which machines are working and not working? Um, and so the key problem is, can you tell which machines are working and not working? The answer is, uh, it depends, right? So it's 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 very finicky problem. In practice, people are kind of detecting it, meaning they're they're guessing. Um, so so that's that's the fundamental problem. Um, so, so people have proven, you know, in some mathematical setting, that you can have at best two of these, and that's, I think, motivating a lot of the more relaxed consistency models that you see for these newer distributed databases. We would all, as application developers, like to have strong consistency. Now, as we're learning, we can't really have everything we want. You have to weaken the consistency model in such a way that you can still provide a reasonable user experience. So what are some of the directions you would go with that? Sure. So, so I think eventual consistency is the idea that you know your, your data will come into consistency, but, but maybe not immediately upon the instant of the write. Um, so, so clearly the, um, the, the weakest guarantee is that it, it will someday happen. Uh, weaker still is, is no guarantee of consistency, meaning, you know, hopefully it will happen, but if, if some server crashes or something, then there's absolutely no guarantee at all, right? So, so, um, Voldemort and a lot of these more kind of systems that are, they're modeled on Amazon Dynamo try to provide something better than that. Uh, so in particular, they try to provide guarantees of, about being able to read your own rights. So, so it's it's tunable. You can make it faster by having less consistency, or you or you can make it you know, a little bit slower, uh, still not slow, but but somewhat slower uh, with with better consistency. So the guarantee you can give is essentially around reading your own rights. Meaning, if you did an update, uh, you want to get that back. So in practice, this means you know if I, if I enter some information on a form on a website and I hit submit on the next page, when you show me what I just entered and you ask me to confirm, I better get back. Uh, the same thing I put into the former, I'll be a very confused user. And so, so I think you have to be able to provide at least that. Otherwise, uh, you provide a, a pretty bad user experience if this inconsistency stuff happens at all frequency, frequently. If it's, if it's one in a million, maybe you can say, well, that user will be a bit confused, but it, it very rarely happens. I, I don't know. But, um, but we can provide that kind of read-your-own-rights consistency, which I think is the guarantee most people are looking for. So if I enter a comment on a blog, somebody else does a read of the blog comments, are you saying we don't necessarily care if that guy is 300 milliseconds behind the most recent blog comment? Yeah, so you can get into a lot, you can, you can think of a lot of scenarios where uh, consistency is not as important. And so, so things like a search system will almost always take advantage of this. So if you, if you enter a, a, a comment on a blog, it may actually be you know, a minute uh, before you're able to find that in a search, because you know a search index needs to be updated with this. The more you update the index, uh, the more inefficient the system is. Um, so in fact, you know a lot of things are doing that already. Um, so so yeah, that's that's exactly the idea. Is that you know in some cases you don't need as strong as you know read your write consistency. You just need I get the update pretty soon. Uh, now in practice, pretty soon is going to be 
pretty soon, like, you know, less than a second. It's not, it, it's not, you know, 20 minutes. So we're forced by the growth of data and scale in these web applications to weaken the consistency model. We're learning that this really strong guarantee of consistency was a little bit over-engineered for some cases where it wasn't really required. If you need it, you need it. <laughs> uh, there's, no, there's no arguing with that, right? If you have an application which, which requires you to, to have you know, a precise view of the state, then that's, that's what you need. Now, there, there are distributed algorithms which provide something like that. Uh, they provide you know, uh, perfect consistency on write, um, but they're slower. So, um, so, so those are kind of the traditional distributed database algorithms, two-phase commit, three-phase commit, Paxos. Um, they're in some ways stronger algorithms, but they are, you know, depending on the system, more, more prone to getting stuck. Um, and and you know giving you giving you nothing or, or you know sacrificing availability, um, so so you have to kind of actually make that trade off of you know is it better for the website to go down sometimes or is it better for someone to get you know a stale result sometimes so those are kind of the the trade offs you have to make. Unfortunately, you do have to make some trade off. Uh, you can't you can't get it all. Voldemort relies on a concept called consistent hashing. Tell us about that. It's, it's, I think, a really simple idea that, that's been explained in a complicated way. Uh, but the idea is uh, it's, it's hashing, meaning you, uh, you, you make up some nonsense uh, number or bytes related to your value, and that is going to control the location where your value is. Right? So that, that's what hashing is. In a normal hash table, um, you, would put, you, know, you, would, you would make a little array of size you know, 10 or whatever, and you enter things into that array until it gets too full, and then you resize the array. And um, you copy everything out of that array into a bigger array, right? That's how uh, you know. Whenever you had to last implement a hash table, uh, not something I do very frequently anymore, but that was uh, that was how you did it, right? So the problem with that becomes it's it's a great system. That's how most you know in-memory hash tables work. It becomes problematic when when data is on disk somewhere or over a network because obviously recopying all the data around would be uh, a big problem. If your hash table is split up onto multiple machines. Right. Right, so that's that's exactly the idea. So actually, this problem was first encountered uh, with disk hashes, which were not distributed. It was just you you know instead of a hash table, you'd have a big file and you'd hash data into the file, as opposed to a, a B tree or something. And they came up with a totally different solution from consistent hashing, but it provides similar properties, which is um, you don't want to have to move all the data, uh, you don't want to have to recopy everything. So in the case of Voldemort, we're using hashing to locate stuff. So you know where is my data? Oh, it's on this machine, that machine, and this other machine over here. Um, so we need to be able to answer that question. So there's there's two ways to answer it. One is hashing, which is you kind of predict the location, you know, calculate the location. The other is store the location, right? You can keep a big lookup table and you say, okay, well, where is such and such? Um, hashing is much much easier to scale. Um, so that's that's why we're doing that. the 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 problem again becomes, you know, well, okay. When you filled up the machines you have, how can you move data to the other machines uh, in, without moving everything? Um, so, so if when I bought my, you know, I had ten machines when I bought the eleventh, how can I fill it up without rearranging everything? You'd really like to move about one tenth of the data in that case, ideally. That that's right. That's right. So that's that's the guarantee that, uh, or that that's the property that these consistent hashing uh, methods provide. So a couple of ways to go about it, um, but but essentially what you're doing is you're you're mapping keys to um, some kind of arbitrary partition, uh, and then you're mapping partitions to machines. So the mapping of uh, key to partition is static, 
but the mapping of partition to machine is allowed to change, and that allows you to you know, have more flexibility in arranging your data. So we've been talking about these distributed systems concepts for a few minutes. Let's come back to Voldemort. What does a programmer see when they sit down to write an application that uses Voldemort? Sure. So, so essentially, the model is is just like a hash table, minus you know maybe you can't you can't uh, iterate over all the keys quite as easily, but but that's the idea, right? So, so what can you put in a hash table? Well, you can put a simple object, or you can put a list of objects, or whatever. But that's that's the interface. So, so for for simple purposes, you can actually mock it out with an actual hash table, and we provide some helper class for doing that. But but presumably, you're going to have something persistent across multiple machines when you use it. So is it the responsibility of the programmer to take whatever data they have, some complex graph of objects, serialize that, and then Voldemort doesn't care what it's storing? Um, yeah, so to some degree. So I guess there's a, there's a couple ways to design this. So some people have done um, just kind of a dumb uh, byte array. So has, the system has no idea what it is. It's just bytes. It's up to you to get the bytes in and out correctly. Uh, other people have kind of committed to a more traditional data model where they say, okay, you can have strings, you know, like you would have in a database. You have varchar and you have uh, big int, whatever, you know, numeric types and uh, string types you have. So the, the downside to dumb byte array is it becomes very hard to peek at your data if you're the operations team, and um, it becomes very hard to remember what so-and-so put in there <laughs> when you're the poor guy who's maintaining so-and-so's code. Uh, the downside to, a, you know, committing to an actual... Uh, schema like you would have in, in MySQL is if you want to do something crazy like store, you know, a personalized uh, search index like for your personal inbox, uh, or if you want to store like an image, then that's obviously not going to work as naturally in some other serialization scheme. So, so the, what we do is we instead kind of make it pluggable. So there's a number of good serialization systems out there. We added one which has a JSON data model, but you know is a more efficient uh, binary format. Um, but there, there's a number of good systems out there. There's protocol buffers. There's, there's a new one called Avro, which is being used for Hadoop. Um, there's uh, Thrift, which I think was one of the first open source ones. And so these are, these are pretty good systems. They provide some code generation capabilities. They support the kind of uh, data types you would want. You could store totally opaque data, or if you use one of the provided serializations, then it gives you a little more self-describing property on the data. That's right. So, so in particular, I guess the server knows the serialization type. If you mark it as a protocol buffer object, it will know that it can deserialize it as a protocol buffer object. So that's that's useful. The 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 main reason we went this kind of middle route is uh, a feature we just recently added, which is views. So a view is, I mean, a view is a whole thing in a relational database. But for us, it means just being able to do some server side transformation. Uh, some processing on the server. So in order to do that processing on the server, you need to know what your bytes mean. You can't just, you know, you can't just process an opaque byte array in any meaningful way. Is any support provided for an XML data type? Um, not directly. Uh, so, so what we found is XML is not a great way to store. It's a, it's a great way to store documents. It, we haven't found it to be a great way to store, you know, values, all of which will have the same schema. So in particular, the, the reason being it's just, it's just a bit inefficient. It's, it's costly to process, and it's, it's costly in terms of the number of bytes you store. But, but you can certainly do that. I mean, what we have is essentially a string serialization type, which would allow you to put in any string. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't check the XML validation. What programming languages do you provide an API for? 
So the, the original one was just Java, but we've added uh, a number of others. So, so we have one for C++, we have one for Python, and we have one for Ruby. And if anybody else uh, knows another language and wants to write a client, it's, it's not too hard to do. And it, it, it's nice. It makes it uh, accessible to, to people in other languages. Project Voldemort implemented entirely in Java? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, only, only the other clients are in, you know, outside of Java. Now we're going to talk about the architecture. Could you break it into pieces for us at the high level and tell us what the pieces are and how they work together? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, there's a couple of problems you have to solve. One is, is where to put your stuff. Uh, which which machines are going to hold what, and so that we talked about the consistent hashing. Uh, that's kind of the routing layer. Um, it's going to deal with the fact that there's multiple machines that each read or write needs to go to. It's going to choose those machines using consistent hashing or some other. It's actually pluggable, so if you have a, a different hashing mechanism, you could you could kind of implement your own. Um, another problem you're going to have to do solve is is you know getting data back and forth over the network as quickly as possible. So there's there's kind of a networking or remoting layer. Um, and there, there's a storage layer, which is, you know, where are my bytes on this machine? Are they, are they in memory, on the on disk? How can I get at them? Um, so so those, are the, those are kind of the main layers. The things that are happening at the routing layer is, you know, choosing the machines a, a thing goes to, getting back all the results, uh, repairing any inconsistent um, data on those machines, um, and, you know, handing, handing back the, the single result to the client. Um, the the network layer is just you know kind of very simple socket access. We have also an HTTP version of that layer, but hasn't proven to be greatly beneficial because uh, it's a bit slower. If I had a programming language I wanted to use that you didn't have a client for, I could use HTTP, correct? Um, you could. There's still some stuff you'll need to understand. There's there's some versioning of the data, uh, which which you'll need to kind of deserialize. So even if you're even if you're communicating via HTTP, um, you still need to be able to understand the versioning of the data and what what values you're getting back. So it's not, um, you know, it's it's not the simplest kind of RESTful model, but it is much more efficient than you know me giving you back a, a XML description of whatever you know. So so that was kind of the trade-off was since since we felt like this was a you know, a storage system is, is inherently strongly coupled to the application. Um, it's not something that's going to be kind of publicly accessible on the internet. It's, you know, it's inside of your application. We felt like, you know, it was more important for it to be fast than, um, than do something more restful, which would provide the, the most easiest uh, compatibility model with every other language, but would have other drawbacks. So you were partway through the layers, and I asked you that question. So let's, yeah, let's yeah, finish yeah, that. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that's what the network layer is doing. The, the persistence layer is, is probably the thing that the most thought in databases has ever gone into, is you know, what's, what's the data structure for this? In practice, everyone has ended up with B trees, but there's a lot of other stuff out there, in particular kind of variants which are um, more like a log-structured file system that kind of write ahead. What we're using at LinkedIn is something based on uh, B2B's Java edition. So they have a very good kind of write-ahead B-tree um, implementation. We've BDB, that's of, Berkeley Database. Yeah, that's Berkeley Database, um, or Sleepy Cat, I guess some people call it, because that was the company that made it. Um, so that's, that's what we're using the most. Uh, the other thing that we have is, is something which is probably more efficient than that for kind of read-only batch-computed data. 
Um, and then we've we've done a number of experiments to try to you know the the idea of having a kind of pluggable layer for this is there there are real trade-offs that have to do with how many writes you have, how many reads you have, what are the size of the values, um, and a number of other things like that. Um, you know how variable is the request stream. Um, so we've we've done kind of a number of experiments on improving this, and I, I think we haven't gotten something we're we're completely happy with as a solution to B2B. Like it just isn't as good all around. So we've we've stuck with that for now. The ordering of the layers is not necessarily fixed. There's some flexibility in the type of network architecture you choose and how you arrange the layers. What are the choices that you have there? In particular, one thing we did when we uh, we built this, which you know it has some some advantages and disadvantages, is we tried to build each layer as kind of uh, a decoration on top of the other layer, which means you can actually reverse the layers to some degree. Um, so clearly, you need to serialize your data before you send it over a network. Um, you know, you need to turn it into bytes before you can send it over a network or put it on a disk. But um, you, it is actually possible to to reverse things like routing and and network. Which, uh, which has some interesting trade-offs. In particular, um, it can make it so that you can have a very uh, dumb kind of client, and the dumb client just you know, sends the data to whichever server it knows about, and that server sends the data to the right places. Uh, or you can have a smarter client, which has, has one less hop, and just sends the data directly to the, uh, the, the servers that will be you know, eventually storing this. So the, the trade-off has to do with you know, the, the implementation complexity of the client versus the you know, kind of the latency and, and performance and also how, how tightly coupled the client is to the server. In what situation would you want to put the routing on the client rather than on the server? When you can. It makes sense it makes sense to spread the load to the client and avoid the network hop just because the what you pay for the network hop is is probably not worth it. So so I guess currently today it makes sense to do that if you're doing it in Java or C++, because those are what we have a, a rich client for. So for LinkedIn, that's what, that's what we're doing. We've had, we've had pretty good results for that. What software runs on a server node in a cluster? So, so essentially, there's um, you know, kind of a, a, a server process. It can be deployed as like a, a war in a servlet container also, if, if that's better you know, for your setup. Um, and what that's going to have is it's going to have the, the storage layer, the storage engine that we talked about. It's going to have a, you know, the network server or servers if you have both the you know, TCP IP and, and HTTP um, servers configured. Um, and, and it's going to have some of the background consistency stuff. So we have you know, kind of administrative API. We have you know, a few other things which are you know, running in the background that might do background cleaning of the data and stuff. But the, that's the main software on the server. Um, so and in addition, we're going to have kind of this this routing layer for doing server side routing, which just kind of sits there in the background, waits for a request, which is you know as yet unrouted, and then we'll send to the right servers from there. Are there any distinguished nodes in the network that play some special role, or are they all uniform? Um, yeah. So so one of the decisions we made, um, and it 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 has real trade offs, is is that uh, all the nodes are uniform. So it's it's completely peers. There's nothing different. You know, the only thing that distinguishes one from the other is its its ID. There's no there's no master. There's no election of masters. Um, so that makes certain problems a little bit harder, and then certain problems a lot easier. So in particular, we think it's a lot easier to operate that kind of a system um, because you don't have this you know special node or tiers. So so other systems I've seen that some of which are very good 
have you know a very layered architecture with five or six components which are actually in completely different programming languages and work differently um, and they fulfill some role in the system uh, we don't have that we just have a bunch of computers which are all identical um, and they may be doing one or two different types of things but all the nodes are identical from an operational standpoint, that's simple. Uh, usually, um, it you know, I mean, in particular, if you have if you have six different pieces all performing some role, then your your operations team is going to need to know what all the pieces are, how they work together, how they talk to each other, um, and you then need to you know you have six possible bottlenecks. If you can if you can do it in such a way that you just have one type of machine, then your your only bottleneck is you know how many how many machines do we have, uh, hopefully. Can you add or remove nodes from a live system and have the system, is the system self-organizing? Um, yeah, so that's something we're working on. So we, we haven't really had that feature. Or, or I mean, rather, you can always add data to a system, but it would, uh, um, your data would become kind of like unavailable. You know, that, that, that key would be, the consistency guarantees would be lost while it was being moved, right? So, so we, haven't, we haven't really had that feature uh, implemented correctly. Um, and so that's that's something we're working on. I think we, we almost have it. We have kind of like in in trunk now we have kind of a very, very alpha version of it. Um, and so the, the main the main features we needed to get that was the ability to stream data between machines efficiently. Uh, you can't just do, you know, uh, a million puts and gets to move data. Uh, you have to stream it efficiently. And um, also the ability to kind of change some of the metadata on the fly and expire the metadata that clients have so that they now talk to the right machines and so on. Without that feature, then, if you want to increase the size of a cluster, do you need to take it down and run some kind of a script to reorganize the data? Yeah. yeah. Do people typically build clusters out of homogeneous hardware, or can the system use different sized hardware efficiently? Um, so it, it can use different sized hardware efficiently. Um, whether or not that makes sense is another question. So we. We are, we are doing that to some extent, but I, I think we're trying not to. Um, so what, what we have the ability to do is, is keep more or less data on a particular machine. And in practice, that will affect a few things, right? So it will affect how much um, disk space you're using, how much uh, I.O. and you know, kind of I.O. operations you're going to have. And it will also affect how many network requests you get, how much CPU you get, because that's the number of overall requests you're going to get. So that's kind of the tuning knob for supporting uh, different hardware. Now, in practice, that may be a bit of a pain to manage if you have to remember, oh, you know, node 21 has extra stuff because it has, you know, seven hard drives and they're fast, and node 22 has two hard drives and it's really slow, so it has less stuff. It also kind of makes the performance of the system hard to characterize because, you know, if you if you draw your monitoring graphs and this one's different than that one, it's it's a bit of a pain. But it you know, may turn out to be a good feature. So yeah, we, we support it, but we're, we're trying not to use it uh, at LinkedIn just because it's easier to manage a homogeneous system. Do you have any modeling tips for anticipating the size of a cluster that I'm going to need before building it? Yeah. Um, so it's actually kind of an easy problem. So usually performance tuning for storage stuff is very difficult. The reason is, in general, uh, the variance of I.O. is, is very high. Uh, you have your, your actual disk operations, which are extremely slow, and then you have your cache disk operations, which are instantaneous. And so you have some mixture of those, and you don't quite know what you're going to get for a particular query. Um, but, but since we're only providing a very limited set of fast APIs, it's pretty predictable. So the things that you need to understand are, 
um, what percentage of, of my hot data is in memory. Um, so, so best way to estimate that is what percentage of all the data is in memory, right? So if you have, um, let's say you have a terabyte of data and you cut it up among 10 machines, uh, and then you, you store two copies of everything, uh, or three copies of everything, it's very easy to figure out, okay, how much data is there on each machine, right? Um, and then the other question you would ask as well, how much memory do I have on those machines? Um, and that's kind of the, the raw proportion of data you would have in memory if there was no locality of reference or whatever. So, so if you're if you're running at a ratio of you know 50% in memory, you would expect pretty quick um, in terms of performance. If you're if you're running at a, a rate of you know 10 to 1 on disk, then then you would expect much slower, right? Because most of the time you're going to be doing a 10 millisecond disk seek uh, to find your stuff. Um, so the, that's kind of the basic guideline. And if if you want to try a real problem, the way we always do it is we say, okay, well roughly how big is my value, and then we try it. Um, and we, we see the performance, and then we extrapolate out. So if I had, you know, because it scales linearly, you can say, okay, well, this is performance for this many on one machine. If I had five more like that, um, this would be what I would see. So, so we essentially hold that ratio fixed, and then, you know, uh, multiply out by the actual amount of data and the actual amount of machines. And that's, that's been pretty realistic. I mean, you know, there's always some surprise, but it's, you know, you're expecting more like plus, plus or minus 10% rather than, you know, oh my god, I have a full table scan and <laughs> nothing works at all. This seems to me an advantage of this type of system compared to relational databases which scale very non-linearly. Yeah, so, so in practice, I think it's one of the biggest advantages that if, if, at least for us, if we're in the process of developing a feature, you can think before you've written any code, you can, you know, take out your notebook and you can do a few paper and pencil calculations, which will give you a very accurate estimate of how feasible is what you're doing, what are the hardware requirements going to be. And knowing that very early on in the process, instead of right at the end when it's all done uh, and it's too late to order any hardware anyway, that, that's hugely advantageous because then you can, you can rethink about some of your requirements or whatever if it turns out that you know, it's, it's just an unfeasible problem to solve or you can, you can buy more machines or whatever you need to do um, early on. Let's walk through what happens when you do a write. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so I mean, it's, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through it with the, the client-side routing. So essentially, you know, you're going to call put, um, and you're going to pass in, uh, you know, kind of a key and a value. Um, it's, it's going to, your, your value is going to be serialized into bytes. Um, if, if you've enabled compression, it's going to be um, compressed. Uh, and then um, the routing layer is going to take that value. It's going to it's going to take your key. It's going to calculate, you know, which which machines might might have this, uh, you know, are responsible for this, and uh, the the order to do the writes in, um, and it's then going to hand those off to the the lower level kind of network stores, which are going to start doing these writes to all the machines, um, and then you know each each uh, the network request gets sent to the individual machines. The machines, uh, you know deserialize the network request and, and perform the, the write to disk. How many writes does it do of each piece of data? That's a configuration option. So what you want kind of depends on um, what, what performance you're hoping for. So the, 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 there's, a couple, there's a couple of knobs that you have. So the first knob is you know, how many times is each value written overall. Um, so that, that's obviously going to control how many machines you can, you can have down and still get your data, right? So if you write it three times and 
and you lose three machines, then then somebody's missing their stuff. Um, the the other knob is is how much do you the the person calling put? How many of those writes do you wait for? So right, you might you might not care at all, in which case you maybe you wait for no writes, uh, or you might wait for just you know the first write to occur, the the second write to occur before you consider it done. I'm coming to you with an application that I want to build. What are some questions you'd ask me to determine how to set those knobs appropriately for my application? Sure. Um, so I mean, I guess the 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 primary thing that I ask is what you know what are what are the expectations for the data? Um, you know, what is the data? Is it is it something a user took time to enter, or is it something that we've just calculated? Uh, typically, something that you know your user has has created is, is pretty valuable and you don't want to lose it. Uh, maybe something that you've calculated is kind of uh, less valuable. And and so that's that's usually it's, you know, what what how, how important is this? <laughs> how important is this data? Uh, the more important it is, the more the more correct uh, the more correctness guarantee you want, right? So the more replicas. The more writes you wait for, that's going to introduce latency from the user standpoint, correct? That's correct. Yeah, and it, and it will increase the the load on the system, right? So if you if you if you do twice as many writes, uh, you'll have twice as much load from those writes. Now, what happens when you want to read the data? So essentially, the same thing will happen. The key will be serialized. The routing layer will choose the you know the the same nodes that you wrote it to. Um, you'll Perform, you'll perform a read from some number of those nodes, which is, again, a configuration property. Um, those requests will be sent off to those machines. The machines will um, you know, look it up in the storage engine and provide a result. Uh, the, the result comes back with a, a version attached to it. So then on the client side or, or whoever is doing the routing, if it's server-side routing, this would happen on the, the, whichever server was processing your request, uh, the versions will all be compared. Um, any version which is kind of obsolete will be uh, scheduled to get repaired. So it's doing multiple reads yeah, and looking yeah, for the yeah. best one. That's right. That's right. So, so, so essentially, this kind of a system is actually um, postponing the consistency, meaning it's not consistent immediately on write, but we guarantee the consistency properties, whatever you've kind of set, uh, on read, meaning uh, you have to go to more than one place uh, if you want the kind of read your own writes consistency. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's going to do multiple multiple reads, maybe I don't know, two or three. Um, it's going to compare the versions on those objects. Uh, you're going to get returned the most up to date, and it's going to schedule a repair on anybody who's out of date. And what is a repair? Um, it's it's just a, a put operation. Um, so so let's say that let's say that you know one machine was down or or had some error or for some reason couldn't get the earlier write. Um, well, what happens then? Uh, clearly, it needs to get the the right value eventually. Um, so there's a couple of mechanisms by which you can get which you can get that. But the, the simplest is if you just do a read, we get back three three versions, and one of them is is old. Um, then we can schedule you know a put operation that will happen in the background um, and update that value. Are writes guaranteed to finish within any bounded amount of time? Yeah. So all the operations come with a timeout. So I mean, one thing we found is for real time applications, it's usually better to fail in a guaranteed amount of time than to uh, Always succeed eventually. So, so in particular, if you have a web page, um, and you know maybe your web page is, does 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 service requests to get all the information it needs, it's really important that you have some kind of uh, fixed guarantee of how long each of those pieces takes. Otherwise, you know even a very trivial piece 
can break the whole thing. You're, you know, you're as slow as your slowest component. So, so we each each kind of um, operation has a, a timeout, and uh, when that timeout's reached, uh, the operation will fail, even if it might have succeeded had you waited longer. That enables application developers to write applications with some kind of latency guarantee. That's right. So, so in particular, it lets you tolerate uh, slowness on a single machine a little better. So we try to do as good as we can with that. It's, it's one of the harder problems. Um, but in particular, what you would like, I mean, in a typical application, if you, if you have one database and your database is slow, then your application is slow, right? What you would like if you have more than one server is you would like to be you know, not as slow as your slowest machine. Uh, you would like to somehow know that that machine was slow and not use it. Um, so, so what we have in place is this kind of an SLA that you set, and you say, okay, it must, must happen within this time period. If it doesn't, that machine is going to be taken out uh, and only periodically used to retry it to see if it's uh, fixed itself. <laughs> if I do a read or a write, then there are multiple machines. If enough of them finish, the operation will complete and the client can continue. That's right. So you get your result back as quick as the uh, as quick as the you know the fastest two or three or however many you've configured that you must have. Suppose I configure it to return from a write when zero storages have completed because I don't exactly care what happens on the back end. Is the storage layer guaranteed to finish persisting things to a permanent state within any bounded amount of time? No, no. So, so you. If you don't wait, then you have no guarantees whatsoever of what happened, right? So, so it could be, for example, that the client you were on lost all network uh, capabilities. You know, the the very instant that you called put, and so no no writes were done whatsoever, and there's nothing there's nothing that can be done about that. So you have to wait for for some writes to occur before you have any guarantee. Now, a second question that you had is when does data actually get to disk? It's an important question. So. Um, so the, the, the interface within our system is that it's up to the storage engine to decide. So you can write a purely in-memory storage engine. Of course, when you restart the server, it will, will lose your stuff. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, we do have such a thing, but, but I think it's probably not that practical for, for usage. Um, but in particular, one of the, the huge performance benefits of a system like this is not, not writing your data to disk immediately. So what that means is, uh, A, your writes can be... Um, they can be done in kind of an append-only fashion, um, and they, it can happen kind of when 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 many writes have accumulated. You can you can kind of do a single update um, to disk rather than doing random writes all over the place, um, and uh, so so that's 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 the first benefit is is the disk layout proofs, but also the latency of our write is much better. Uh, so so in particular, if you're waiting for you know a single disk C plus write, you're talking probably at least 10 milliseconds. If you're waiting for that on multiple machines, then you're waiting for the, the longer of these operations, right? Because you, you know, even the, the 10 milliseconds assumes that you, you start right away, uh, but you may be waiting for other writes to complete or, or whatever else. Um, so, so if you're taking the maximum of three of those or something, maybe much worse. Um, so you want to, uh, you, you know, we would want to avoid that. Uh, for our production systems, we usually see, you know, very good, very good performance. So from client side, could be you know, millisecond, five milliseconds for right. So it's you know it's faster than a disk seek from the client side, even though that includes network overhead, serialization, blah 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 blah. The designer needs to make some choices then about the number of reads and the number of writes, which you could look at independently of each other. But is there any significance to the number of reads in comparison to the number of writes? 
Yeah, so I mean the 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 two important guidelines are a um, you know really do put it on more than one machine. <laughs> Even though you're not used to that with a database, it just most of the features don't work if it's only uh, if everything is only written to one machine because if that machine fails and has a disk error, the data is really gone. Number of writes greater than greater or than equal to greater than or equal to two. <laughs> sorry, strictly greater than one. So we found first of all, people who thought that was a good idea was not a good idea. Uh, probably three is the right number. I, I don't know why, but two seems to be slightly too little uh, because sometimes you do actually have two machines that fail at the same time, and then that's, you know, you don't want to have to, you know, if you're waiting for a new machine to come in or something or somebody doesn't have time to deal with it, you don't want to have to deal with that right away. Uh, the other thing is, you know, the, the consistency guarantee of, of reading your own writes, um, that would require that, you know, the number of reads plus the number of writes um, is is at least the the number of replicas. Uh, so so if you, um, you, you you what what I'm saying is you can configure it in such a way that you're you're guaranteed to always read one of the the newer versions that you wrote. You're never going to have a situation where there's no overlap between those two. Um, so if you do that, you're going to get back what you uh, what you put in, which is usually what what people want. The system designed under the assumption that failures are short and the machine boots back up pretty quickly? Um, no, no. So, so, so in particular, we don't have that. Uh, very often, if we don't, sometimes we have, we have extra hardware, meaning if, if a machine fails, it's, uh, you can swap in such and such. I mean, I mean, there's two kinds of failures. One, one kind of failure is like, oh, we're just pushing new code. So we, we do a rolling restart across the servers. Um, the system stays up, but a particular server is down for, for a few seconds or, you know, few minutes. Um, but another kind of server is like, well, another kind of problem is, I, I don't know, we had some problems with uh, RAID controllers, or we had some problems with disk or whatever, and the server is actually down for hours, or in some cases, you know, a week. Um, and so in that case, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely down for an extended period of time. The relational database, we push most of the computation out to the server. It understands all the data. It knows how it's structured. From what you're saying with this application, you have some decisions to make about do you want to do more of the processing on the client or on the server? How, how do you think about that? Um, so most of the time, there's, there's not a problem. Uh, it's fine to just you know, send the data to the client, let the client deal with it. Um, the, the real case where you get into trouble is if you just want a little snippet of that data or you're going to somehow aggregate the data maybe by Maybe you want to count everything that meets some criteria. These are things which are kind of very traditional SQL uses, you know, where x greater than 2 and not whatever, right? So the first assumption is, you know, because this is kind of a key value storage, you've already denormalized that. You have some blob that has the stuff you want. Um, but, but you might say, well, it's, it's sort of inefficient for you to transfer me the whole blob, then me to filter out just the things which meet my criteria, come up with a single integer which counts them all, and then use that, right? Because you transferred me maybe, you know, uh, 50 kilobytes, but I, I only computed something that was, you know, four bytes long in the end. Um, so, so your complaint would be, well, you know, it's stupid for, for, for you to send me all these kilobytes. I should just, you know, send my code over to you once. You do that on your side, um, and, and that will be more efficient. Um, now, in practice, network is not always the bottleneck, so may or may not actually make anything faster. But it does make it does make sense to do this in a lot of cases. In, in particular, we see that you know our storage nodes are usually um, not CPU bound, so so they have additional CPU capacity. 
um, and it it's always nice to have have less network I/O. It's always nice to um, to um, speed things up that way. So 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 that's the scenario where you would want to kind of create a view which has your code. Now the the downside to that is you you're kind of coupling your application a bit more strongly to the um, to the system. Um, I guess in that in that respect, it's kind of like a stored procedure as much as a view, right? Because you've you've sent some piece of your application over to the the database server, which is now uh, performing that for you. So is that a good thing? Well, it may it may reduce the the amount of data that's transferred back and forth. A view is a computation that you want performed on the server from a Voldemort yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. 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 So so the the primary reason you would do that is to avoid uh, network I/O. The server needs to understand at least something about how your data is organized in order to implement a view. That's correct. Otherwise, you would just have a bunch of bytes, and it would be up to you to kind of get it right. Uh, obviously, that could be very difficult to do. Um, so, so because you, you know, when you create the the way it's organized is this: it's not just one. You know, the the whole cluster of machines is not just one hash table. It's kind of like multiple hash tables. Each hash table has pr specific settings about the number of reads and writes and other things like that. One of those settings is what's the serialization type for this data, um, and so that that kind of guarantees that whenever you interact with that data, it's it's correctly serialized. You don't have you can't accidentally serialize it into the wrong thing and get some nonsense data back. Um, so so as a result of having that. Uh, metadata associated with the store. We can correctly serialize the data on the, the server and apply the user's view transformation to it and then give, give back the transformed result. You say that the system has multiple hash tables. That would be in a relational database like the customer table, tables, the account yeah, table. Tables, tables. So, so I guess I didn't call them tables just because they're not tabular. But in fact, that's much uh, more straightforward. We call them stores. Because uh, they're non-tabular, but but yeah, they're just tables. Does the view functionality extend to being able to join across separate stores or tables? Um, so no, no, it doesn't, right? So I guess the if if you're going to join data, um, you're going to go across the network because the data you're going to cut across uh, what's on a particular machine um, because the data is partitioned up amongst machines. And if you're doing that, there's no real savings of pushing it to. Uh, Pushing it to the server side because the server is going to have to go, you know, to multiple machines and transfer the data across the network anyway. Now, um, that said, that's that's a perfectly fine thing to do, and in fact, is you know, very common use cases to do, do a bunch of gets uh, for different things and kind of assemble it all into one. This would put on the client the burden of what a query optimizer does in a relational database. Um, yes, yes, it does. Yes. So, so whether or not you think that's a good thing kind of depends. Um, my perspective, this is all online. I have also spent a lot of time on offline systems. In particular, you know, uh, we have kind of Hadoop and we have a bunch of these distributed databases. Uh, we've tried a couple of them. We have Astrodata right now. And their, their selling point is always the query optimizer. And my pain point is always the query optimizer because Hadoop has no query optimizer. You just tell it to do something and it does it. And if you tell it something stupid, you know, oh, this is the stupid thing. Stop doing that. And um, so, so I found, especially for, for kind of a real-time website, you need to know what it's doing. Um, you know, if, if it optimizes it wrong and you get something which would scan every table across, you know, 20 machines or something, that will completely crash your site. And, you know, that's a terrible, terrible bug. And so you, it needs to be, you need to somehow be able to program things in a way that the optimizer couldn't choose that. 
Um, and so as a result, I'm not a huge believer in that problem. I think it's a very fun computer science problem because it's, uh, there's no right answer. And you know, so you can always work on it and write more papers about how to optimize a particular case better. But I think in practice for, for a system, you're better off uh, thinking about the problem and understanding your, your data and then making, making a good decision. What you're saying now is that things that we wish were hidden and that are hidden in a small system are not really hidden in a large system, even if you have some part of the system that's claiming to do that for you. Yeah, so I guess, I guess the, one, another way to say the same thing, that, that's true, and another way to say the same thing is that um, the, the, these, these kind of key value stores, they're, they're, they're hiding things which were uh, not hidden before, like the number of database servers you have and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's making, it's some, in some ways, it's, it's a higher level system that's not making you think about that. But other things are lower level, like, like how you're doing your table operations uh, is now lower level because you're, you're breaking it down into very predictable operations on multiple stores, which previously would be hidden from you and, and just batched up into one declarative statement. So it, it's kind of uh, simultaneously, I think, getting higher level and lower level at the same time. Uh, the, the one kind of unifying theme is it's, it's bringing the API more in line with the, um, what the machines can provide performance-wise. So, so I guess I, I like to think about databases versus the file system API. File system API is a bit of a pain to work with, but it provides exactly what disks and files can provide in terms of performance, meaning you can seek and you expect when you call seek, you expect that to take some time. When you open a file, you, you expect a certain amount of time for that. Uh, so it hasn't abstracted over anything, but it's extremely you know, predictable uh, versus a database query where you know, you're going to have one sentence of text. It may take an hour. It might take you know, a millisecond. It's very hard to tell by looking at it which of those two it would be. Are there integration layers that make it easy to plug Voldemort in in place of a relational database with Rails or Spring or any of the more popular web frameworks? Um, so, so probably not. I mean, uh, the, I think the way these things come about is something becomes very standard, and then people figure out what the pain points are, and then they develop great, great libraries that kind of work around those pain points. And I think for all these new databases, there's not that much. I mean, it, you know, there, I, I have seen a few little things here and there, um, but I think they're they're probably not nearly mature enough that it's really. Uh, doing anything for you that you couldn't do yourself rather quickly. So I mean, uh, obviously it integrates with Spring fairly easily. Um, th there's no kind of ORM solution that will, uh, you know, transparently um, map everything for you. Um, now, now primarily, I think the reason for that, and certainly the reason we haven't focused on it, is because the use case that we have, we're not using ORM either just because you know once you've kind of split your thing into services there's not a very complicated mapping between between objects and relations anymore um, it's actually kind of a simpler mapping and then you're calling lots of apis so you have a an object api mapping problem not a um, object relation mapping problem if that makes sense because because like for a service oriented architecture your your integration point is apis rather than than tables um, so versus if you have like you know a very simple application where you just have a single database with a bunch of tables, then you're trying to figure out how to piece together all those tables into your domain model. Um, so for that reason, we haven't we haven't done any work on that. Uh, it would be interesting to see what people come up with. Um, it's it's obviously going to be um, a little bit more uh, difficult to do because a database can provide you 
a very inefficient query for anything. Uh, whereas these systems kind of only have efficient queries. <laughs> that's, that's all there is. So, so if you haven't provided the right uh, structure for the lookup, you actually can't, you can't do it. Um, versus a database, you would just do it, and then you would notice, oh, such and such page is slow, why? And then you would figure it out, and you would put in the right index or whatever to make it faster. Would it make sense to use Voldemort to store session data that the user needs to retain from one page view to the next when you're in a clustered environment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a perfectly valid use case. Are you very familiar with uses of Voldemort outside of LinkedIn? Um, I'm a little bit familiar. Uh, I, I usually become familiar if something doesn't work because then people email the list and say, I'm trying to do X. Why doesn't, you know, I expect to see Y, but I don't. What's going on? Um, but yeah, so I mean, what I've seen is basically um, web companies and gaming companies seem to use it. Uh, they seem to be the people who have real-time problems with, you know, enough data to bother looking outside of, like, MySQL. Um, so it's usually fairly small cluster of machines, you know, maybe half dozen, dozen machines. Um, they're, they're small companies, so that's, that's, that's probably plenty. Uh, Do you have so, an idea what are some of the larger clusters that people are building? Um, yeah, it's probably not well outside of that range. I mean, for LinkedIn, it's usually like, you know, maybe 10 machines or something is a, is a cluster. Um, some, are, some are much smaller than that. So, so I think, you know, it's the, the goal, of course, is to have as few as possible. <laughs> um, so, so we've gone with a system where we have, you know, kind of like three or four separate clusters which are completely isolated from each other, and then a bunch of features grouped together on, on one cluster that, that does something, yeah. Suppose I want to move all my data out of Voldemort into a data warehouse so we can do some offline analytics where we take advantage of the capabilities of the more rich query language. Are there some tools to help with that process? Yeah, there are. Um, probably not as, not as many as, as we would like. A lot of these integration point technologies take time to develop. First, you have to have a very stable system. Then people spend time integrating it in all different ways, and then you get a good... Uh, set of solutions for different problems. So what we have right now is kind of a batch streaming API that will let you stream your data uh, into Hadoop or whatever. What we don't have that I would love to have, and is, is kind of our next step, is a good set of MapReduce jobs that work with any data type uh, and kind of act as an input format or something to, to, to get you all your stuff out of your Voldemort cluster. Um, and likewise, it would be nice to have kind of a catch-up mechanism such that you only get the updates from yesterday. You don't have to kind of re- retransfer everything. Um, so those are those are kind of the two missing features. What I'm hearing from you in response to several of these questions is this is a fairly new technology and all the complementary pieces aren't there yet, but there's a lot of scope for obvious improvements. Yeah, so I think that that would be true. I mean, for, for databases and file systems, it's kind of a decade-long project. Um, and so, so my advice to people, if they're looking at this for something in their product, would be, you know, if you don't have a problem, then you don't have a problem. Just stick with whatever you've got. Uh, because most of the things which have been out for 10 years or more are going to have a lot of things built up around them that you may not, you may not realize you would be missing with anything newer. Um, that said, if you do have a problem, uh, probably these systems are much going to be much better and have a lot more infrastructure built up around them than doing it yourself, which of course then you'll have nothing. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the trade-off. If you're thinking about doing it yourself, then, then probably this will help you a lot and provide a lot more built up infrastructure. If you're, if you're thinking about just using MySQL, then you know, that's, that's a pretty good solution if that, will, if that will get the job done.
Tell us about how the Voldemort project is organized as an open source project. It's loosely organized. Um, I mean, basically what we have is we have maybe uh, three or four people in LinkedIn who are doing a lot of work. And then we have maybe three or four people outside of LinkedIn who are doing a lot of work. And then we have a, a lot of people who seem to be kind of trying it or using it, right? Um, so people who are trying it or using it give great feedback. They say, okay, you know, so-and-so just committed X, and now Y doesn't work anymore. Please fix immediately. <laughs> and that's, that's very useful feedback to get. Um, uh, the organization, you know, among people, you know, writing code is kind of like whatever, uh, you know, people who are not working for, for LinkedIn are going to do whatever they, they need. Um, I think there's pretty good consensus among all the people of what, what we think is, you know, we would most want. Um, and then LinkedIn is kind of funding the features that, that we need, which, you know, are around monitoring and scaling and uh, the ETL problems you described and other stuff like that that just make it fit into our environment better. LinkedIn then is the primary industry sponsor of the project. Um, yeah, I think so. In that, that we're you know the we're employing the most people to work on it full time. For some open source products, there's commercial entities that will provide support as a business. Does anything like that exist for Voldemort yet? No, no. So I mean, LinkedIn is not a, a database company. So you you know you can definitely get a lot of help from people on the mailing list, but. Ultimately, uh, there's no kind of organization that you can uh, sue if there's a problem. <laughs> so, so that 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 you know, there's no kind of 24/7 support or whatever contract that you can buy. Um, so that's that's also something to think about. Does the project get very many patches from the community? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we get we get um, you know kind of outside of people who are doing work all the time. I think we get a lot of just random. Uh, patches that fix so-and-so or make such-and-such -such command line easier to use or add support for some new compression type or whatever. And those are, those are very helpful. Um, Where would people go if they want to learn more or maybe get involved? Uh, there's a website that's uh, project-valdemort.com and there's also uh, a mailing list. It's uh, linked off the website. Um, and so you can always, you can always ask you know, questions on that mailing list if you're having trouble setting something up or you're, you're not seeing what you expect. Um, there's there's kind of a list of uh, of what we thought were fun projects on the website. So if you're if you're like interested in this stuff and you want to you know take on some project and try it out, there's a list of things that were you know not too hard as to be unachievable, but also pretty interesting. Um, and so you can check that out and see okay you know if you if you had a couple days to to play around with it, you could try out one of these projects. What are some of the fun projects you'd like to see done? There's lots of them. So the, I mentioned the kind of Hadoop integration where we, you know, write the MapReduce job that that um, pulls all the data out. Um, that's as yet undone. Uh, there's NIO improvements on the client. Um, there's uh, views were one that I just did, so I, I need to take that off the list. <laughs> um, so, so some of the fun projects we get around to. Uh, and then um, well, let's see what else do we have. Uh, there's there's a bunch of smaller improvements for um, the read-only storage engine, um, implementation of kind of other uh, replication mechanisms to be able to catch up, you know, from a particular point. Like, if let's say you have a search engine, you want to index everything that goes in, you need to have a subscription mechanism to to keep up with changes. So there's a there's a there's a bunch of features like that. Um, those are the ones that that I remember off the top of my head anyway. Do you write or blog anywhere if people would like to follow? what you're thinking about? I haven't done that much recently. I mean, basically working on this project, and we have a couple other open source projects coming out, and then I work at a startup uh, 
as well. So I have you know a bunch of features I'm working on and keeping the website working. I, I haven't had time to do much. There is a blog for Project Voldemort. So I have anything related to that I have posted pretty recently um, on different features or stuff we're working on. And I think we're going to expand that as we add. Our team has right now maybe three or four open source projects. Um, and we have a couple more coming out. So we're maybe going to make it a little bit more general purpose to talk about stuff in that area that, that's being done. But yeah, nothing, nothing much outside of that. I don't have a, a Twitter account yet. So, how can people reach you if they'd like to ask you anything? So you can email me. I'm I'm uh, ja.kreps at gmail, um, and I I try to get back as as soon as possible. <laughs> um, best effort. Jay Kreps, thank you very much for being on Software Engineering Radio. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website, or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit delicious links and the slash dot button. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, are licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsife Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.